Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. During the midwinter of 2006, John Jay college student Emmet Sangin went out with several of her friends for an early birthday celebration. In a few days, 24-year-old Amet would turn 25, and she was on top of the world. She was a brilliant graduate student in John Jay College's criminal justice program, who, in only a couple months, would graduate and pursue a career in forensics and crime scene investigation. But in the early morning hours of February 25, 2006, Amet was tragically met with foul play, and soon it would be her crime scene that police were investigating. This episode is titled Murdered at Last Call. So without further ado, let's get started. Sanguine was a brilliant person who had a bright and promising future ahead of her in forensics and crime scene investigation. You see, 24-year-old Amet was a graduate student at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. The former president of John Jay College, Jeremy Travis, said Amet, quote, exemplified the John Jay student, ambitious, smart, passionate about justice, end quote. Prior to working on her master's degree, Emmett attended Boston Latin, one of the best high schools in the country in Boston, Massachusetts. She went on to attend George Washington University, a private research college in D.C., where she graduated magna cum laude. Then, after being accepted into the master's program at John Jay, Emmett spent her free time volunteering at a rape crisis center. One of her close friends, Aaron Rabe, said, quote, The path she chose was to make a difference in the world and to help people, end quote. Unfortunately, however, that path would be cut short after Amet spent a night out celebrating her early birthday with a group of friends on the night of February 24th and into the next morning of February 25th, 2006. On February 24th, Amet and her best friend, Claire, as well as Claire's sister and a few other friends, decided to spend the evening bar hopping in Soho as part of an early 25th birthday celebration for Amet. More specifically, they went out near the area of Bowery and Spring, which was formerly known as a location where sex workers and drug addicts used to hang out in the 1970s and 80s. But in 2006, however, the area was in the beginning stages of some major revitalization, which included the opening of several bars and nightlife establishments. According to an episode of New York Homicide, Amet and Claire enjoyed going out and trying new places. They even kept a list of all the restaurants and bars they wanted to test out, and then each time they went out, they tried a new place and crossed it off their list. 
And this particular night, Emmett's birthday celebration was no different. By the time 2 a.m. rolled around, the celebration had dwindled to just Emmett and Claire at a bar called Pioneer. By this time, sometime between 2 and 3 a.m., Claire was beyond exhausted and ready to go home. However, Emmett was not. She wanted to keep the party going, stay out until at least 4 a.m. when the bars in New York City closed. So, you know how it goes. Claire wanted to go home, but Emmett wanted to stay out. Emmett told her friend, you know, let's just stay out for 20 more minutes, have one more drink. It's my birthday. Let's hang. So, Claire obliged and ordered another drink. But a little later, she tried to get Emmett to go home once again, and once again, Emmett wasn't ready. Essentially, no matter what Claire tried to say, it wasn't going to persuade Emmett to go home, and the two friends even argued a bit. But I'm sure y'all are familiar on just how easy it is to argue and win an argument with an inebriated person. Um, It's not easy. In fact, it's nearly impossible. So Claire decided to go on home and leave Emmett to finish off the night by herself. Now, although Claire took a taxi back home, she did call and check on Emmett because she was obviously worried about her best friend. When she called, Emmett answered, and from the background noise, Claire could tell that Emmett was either still at the Pioneer Bar or she had gone on to another place. Either way, during that phone call, Claire pleaded with her friend to call it a night and catch a cab home. And Emmett promised Claire she would. However, when the two friends hung up the phone that night, it would be the last time they ever spoke. Sixteen and a half hours later, an unknown male called 911 from a local diner in Brooklyn and reported a body lying on the road near Belt Parkway and Spring Creek Park. When police arrived, they found a deceased female who had been brutally murdered and dumped in the area. And side note, it's speculated that the person who called 911 may have also been the person who committed the murder. Plus, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this diner where the call came in from was notorious for being the diner that former mobster John Gotti Jr. would make telephone calls from, and the area where the body was found was known to be a dumping grounds for the mob. Anyway, the woman, the victim of this horrific crime, was found nude, her hands and feet were bound with zip ties, she had been gagged, and she was wrapped in a cheap floral bedspread. Here's the thing, though. The woman had been so brutally assaulted and murdered that she was nearly unrecognizable. And to police, she was unrecognizable because she had no identification whatsoever with her, which meant they had no idea who the victim was that they had just discovered. At first, police thought the victim may have been a sex worker in the area, but they quickly noted she didn't have the typical, like, physical signs of a sex worker. As in, she appeared well-nourished and well-groomed, and there were no obvious signs of drug use or track marks on her skin. And I know, I feel like that sounds so stereotypical, but I do think it's important signs like that that police have to work with when they're trying to solve a crime. Regardless, NYPD officers processed the crime scene for any and all evidence they could find. They discovered red fibers on tape that was used to bind the woman's face from the top of her head to the bottom of her chin. They also processed the bedspread she had been wrapped up in, as well as a snow brush that was located on the ground near her body for potential DNA evidence. They additionally noticed a speck of blood on the zip ties that bound her hands, which also was processed for DNA evidence. The next day, an autopsy revealed that the woman had died of suffocation after the killer had shoved a sock into her mouth so forcefully that it pushed her tongue in backward. Ugh, I know, I'm sorry, y'all. That is so graphic and horrifying. 
In fact, according to NBC News, the medical examiner said it was one of the most horrific murders she had ever seen. The medical examiner also discovered signs that the woman had been brutally raped and tortured before she was murdered. Detective Sean Mateague said, quote, nobody could survive that type of punishment, end quote. But because investigators had no immediate way of knowing who the victim was, they were forced to turn to the media to get the word out and try to drum up some leads. It didn't take long for someone to come forward with critical information. You see, the area where the woman's body was found was quite desolate and dark, with the exception of a nearby construction company. Investigators found a security guard who had been working the overnight shift, and he remembered seeing a blue van near the area where the victim was found. He said he couldn't make out the identity of the person driving, but he said he could definitely see that someone was sitting inside the driver's side of the van. He said he knew this because he could see the light of the person's cell phone, and he noticed the person had the phone up to their ear, you know, like as they were using the phone. So investigators' first official lead was the description of this mysterious van and potentially the person driving it. However, not long after this, police received a phone call from Amet Sangin's cousin. The woman explained that Amet had not been home in over 24 hours, and she was worried that Amet might be the person she had heard about in the media, the woman who had been found deceased in Brooklyn. Unfortunately, Amet's cousin was not mistaken, and her worries became an unthinkable reality when police showed her a photo of the deceased woman. The body they discovered in the early morning hours of February 25th, 2006, was Amet Sengin. But now police could officially launch an investigation into her murder since they discovered her identity. They quickly found out that Amet was part of a very close and tight-knit family. She had a mom and a stepdad, as well as a sister with whom she had a particularly close relationship. Amet and her sister, Alejandra, had lost their biological father at a very early age, which only strengthened their sibling bond and made them closer. When detectives spoke with Alejandra, she told them that Amet had been out the previous night with her best friend Claire, and that Claire might be able to put some pieces together of how this tragedy could have happened. So police quickly reached out to Claire, who was actually in the middle of doing her own searching for Amet. You see, all she knew in the moment was that she last spoke with Amet when Amet was at the bar and Claire had called her. That's when Amet had promised Claire she would go home soon. But when Claire called Amet again for a second time that morning to check on her and, you know, ensure she made it home safely, well, the call had gone straight to voicemail. Naturally, Claire had become incredibly worried about her best friend, which is why she rushed to the Bowery area where they were last hanging out at, and she began going from bar to bar asking if anyone had seen Amet, if anyone had seen her best friend. When detectives reached out to Claire, though, in that moment, they realized she didn't even know Amet had been found, let alone that Amet was no longer alive. Detective Mark Brooks with the NYPD said his heart sunk when he had to deliver the news to Claire. He said, quote, I've done hundreds of notifications like this, and I can't say it ever gets easier. She was hysterical. Claire was blaming herself for everything that happened, end quote. A short time later, Claire went to the police station to tell them everything she knew and exactly how their night went down. She explained to them how it was just her and Amet at the Pioneer Bar by the end of the night and how she couldn't get Amet to leave with her. Detective Brooks explained how devastated and completely grief-stricken Claire was. 
Brooks said, quote, she kept saying, I should have stayed with her. I shouldn't have let her go by herself, end quote. But as hard as it was for Claire to replay everything from the previous night, investigators needed her to share as much information and recall as many details as possible. They had to figure out exactly what happened to Emmett from the time she got off the phone with Claire, you know, after Claire had gone home for the night and then called Emmett to check on her, to 16 and a half hours later when Emmett's body was found. During her interview with investigators, Claire shared with them that while she and Emmett were at the Pioneer Bar, one of the bartenders started flirting with Emmett and was kind of hitting on her. However, Emmett wasn't into it and she politely rebuffed his advances. So detectives started there, and they set off to find and speak with this bartender. When they spoke with the bartender in person, he told them straight up what happened the night before between him and Amet. He simply said that Amet wasn't interested in his advances, and that was the last of it. He said that's honestly all there was to it. According to investigators who spoke with him, they truly believed the bartender was being honest with them and that he wasn't hiding anything. So they crossed him off the list and moved on. Since they were already in the area, though, they began going to most of the bars in the immediate vicinity. They asked people if they had seen Emmett the night before, but nobody they spoke to seemed to have seen her or remembered her. They also tried to access surveillance footage from several different establishments, but detectives said that a lot of the security systems either didn't work or some were just plain fake, like they were there for show and intimidation. And other places made excuses for why they couldn't access the footage. Like, oh, the person who takes care of that isn't here right now, or I have no way to access that, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. In other words, they were reaching a lot of dead ends that would continue to be dead ends until they could either obtain a court order for camera footage or until someone talked. The next person they looked into was a Met's ex-boyfriend, a guy who was a fellow student at John Jay College because Claire told detectives that she noticed a Met was texting with him the night before as well. So detectives reached out to her ex-boyfriend, who, without hesitation, went to the police station to speak with them. In the interview, detectives learned that Amet and her ex, his name hasn't really been revealed, so we'll just call him Jack, but they learned that Amet and Jack met in a police ethics class and immediately hit it off. Jack explained to investigators that the two of them dated for a short time before they both realized they were better as friends. So that's what they agreed to be, just friends. Detective Brooks explained, quote, Emmett's ex-boyfriend still cared about her, and then to tell him that she was deceased was beyond something you can comprehend. Seeing how heartbroken he was, there was absolutely no reason for us to think he had anything to do with this, end quote. Plus, Jack had a strong alibi as well. He was actually with his new girlfriend the night before, which is an alibi police were able to confirm by speaking with her separately. According to an episode of New York Homicide, not only did Jack's and his girlfriend's stories match up about exactly what they had been doing on the night in question, but they also pinged his cell phone to verify he was in those places that he said he was. So police quickly determined that Jack nor his girlfriend were anywhere near the areas that Emmett had last been seen or found in. After several days into the investigation, with leads fizzling out, detectives began scouring databases looking for cases with similarities. As brutal as the assault and murder of Amet was, they were pretty sure that it was not the perp's first time. So they started looking for all New York City sexual assault cases, and one case in particular stuck out to them. Apparently, a man driving an unofficial cab assaulted a woman inside the cab, but she was able to get away. 
In fact, the driver threw the woman out after he sexually assaulted her, which was in a location less than a mile from where Amet's body was found. This made police's spidey senses go off, and they wondered if someone was driving around the city, either as a cab driver or posing as a cab driver, and then snatching up women and raping or murdering them. It was a very scary thought, and, well, to police, it could be the case or it could not be the case, but either way, they had to address it. So they reached out to the victim, who was able to provide a detailed description for a police sketch, and then they publicly released the sketch of the 5-foot, 7-inch cab driver who was in his mid-30s. Not long after the sketch was released, though, a surprise visitor showed up at the station. The cab driver himself. According to New York Homicide, the man went to the station because he saw a sketch of himself in the news, and once there, he freely and openly admitted to sexually assaulting the woman back on February 12, 2006, but he swore that he had nothing to do with Amet's murder. He actually claimed he was in New Jersey, working for the cab company, at the time of the crime, and he even willingly provided his DNA. Obviously, investigators couldn't just take his word for it, so they did speak with the contacts that he drove to New Jersey that night who were able to verify his alibi. They also checked his cell phone record and like pinged his cell phone, which showed he was nowhere near the crime scene, or crime scenes, actually. According to an article for NBC News by Clint Van Zant, at this point in the investigation, all police knew was that whoever killed a Met, that person, or persons perhaps, exhibited intense anger and control. The murder was so brutal that it was obviously her killer wanted to completely dominate her as well as degrade her as both a woman and a human. Van Zant, an MSNBC analyst and former FBI negotiator, suggested that police had at least four different crime scenes to consider. First, there was the location that she was taken from by the perpetrator, like wherever the person snatched her up from, perhaps the bar or that area. Then, they didn't believe the crime or murder had taken place where they found her, but rather she had been transported and dumped there. So the second crime scene would be the location where she was held and tortured and murdered, a place that the perpetrator felt safe enough to take his time. The third potential crime scene was the vehicle used to transport her, and the fourth was the body recovery site itself. So, as detectives were following leads and crossing off potential suspects from their list, they also got in touch with Amet's bank and credit card companies to track her most recent purchases before she died. Perhaps that could at least help them narrow down these potential crime scene locations. And as soon as they gained access to Amet's financial statements, detectives discovered her last purchase was at The Falls, which was a bar only about a five-minute walk from the Pioneer where Claire had last left Amet. Naturally, because Amet made her last purchase there, police headed to the Falls Bar to speak with the manager. Once inside, the manager, a man named Danny Dorian, said he recalled seeing Amet in the bar, but he said he didn't see her leave. Dorian told them that he was likely downstairs in the basement of the bar, counting money at the time. But since Dorian didn't seem to be much help, detectives asked him if he minded if they spoke to other staff who worked there. And his response, according to police, was standoffish, and he wasn't really cooperative, like, at all. He just said that they were busy and that they didn't really have the time. Still, detectives talked to whoever they wanted to and whoever would listen and cooperate with them, including most of the staff, the bartenders, and the bouncer. One female bartender would remember serving Emmett, who said Emmett was there alone. 
The bartender recalled that Emmett ordered two rum and coke cocktails because by the time she arrived at the bar, it was last call. After that, the bartender said she went downstairs to cash out. Shortly after this, the bartender remembered that Dorian, the manager, passed by her and mentioned that the girl, aka Emmett, would not leave. However, when the female bartender went back upstairs, she said Emmett was already gone. Then, when detectives spoke with the bouncer of the bar, who probably should have remembered seeing Emmett because, I mean, obviously she was there, well, he told them rather matter-of-factly that he had never seen her before and that he definitely did not recognize her from the night in question. After visiting the Falls Bar, Detective Brooks said the way the manager and some of his staff acted, well, they had a hunch that there was more to the story, that at least some of the bar staff were not being truthful, and detectives knew they needed to dig deeper into it. So they began looking into the manager, Danny Dorian. And if the name Dorian sounds familiar, it's because his family is actually connected to a prominent murder in Central Park from the 80s, which was dubbed by the media as the Preppy Murder. But allow me to explain when I say connected to the murder. So Danny Dorian's father, Jack Dorian, is the owner of the famous Red Hand Bar on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. That bar, in 1986, was where a man by the name of Robert Chambers met up with 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. After they left the bar, Chambers strangled and killed Jennifer in Central Park. Considering this, investigators wondered if there was a possible connection or if Danny could have been involved in Emmett's murder somehow. So their next move was to obtain search warrants for Danny Dorian's bar, The Falls. They wanted to access Dorian's office and the basement of the bar to look for tape and zip ties and carpet fibers that could potentially match ones found at the crime scene where Emmett's body was discovered. But before they could officially get the warrants, six days into the investigation, Detective Mateague received an unexpected phone call. It was from Danny Dorian and his attorney. Danny was ready to talk. At the station, accompanied by his lawyer, Danny Dorian proceeded to tell investigators that he was not truthful with them when they came by the bar. He said he did, in fact, see Emmett leave the bar that night. He informed them that at closing time, he told Emmett she needed to leave, but Emmett responded by saying she wasn't ready. She said she wanted to finish her drink first. So Emmett and Dorian got into a little squabble. They went back and forth for a bit before Dorian finally told her he was going to have his bouncer escort her out. The next thing Dorian recalled was his bouncer, Daryl Littlejohn, taking Emmett through the side door of the bar. Dorian said at that point he heard some kind of a scuffle and some yelling, but then nothing after that. Now, NYPD detectives were leery of Dorian's story, to say the least, and they were taking everything he said with a grain of salt. I mean, he wasn't forthcoming with information the first time around, so they had no real reason to think this time was any different. But there was one part of Dorian's account that issued some red flags, particularly about the bouncer, Daryl Littlejohn. If you remember, Littlejohn told detectives that he had never seen Emmett, but obviously, according to Dorian, he had. So they began looking into Littlejohn's background, and y'all, he was not a perfect poly. In fact, they discovered he had a rather extensive rap sheet that screamed career criminal. According to the reporting of Larry Salona for the New York Post, Littlejohn's criminal record dated back at least 20 years, and honestly, the man had spent arguably more time in jail than out. Also at the time, in February 2006, Littlejohn was on parole. According to the New York Post, Littlejohn was on conditional parole after serving eight years for armed robbery. 
They discovered that Daryl Littlejohn, a 38-year-old man who stood 6 feet 1 inch and weighed roughly 200 pounds, had several different aliases, and he used a new alias for nearly every different conviction. For example, in 1988, he used the name John Handsome, and in 1995, he used the name Johnny Blaze. So, obviously, detectives needed to speak with this man, whoever he was, ASAP. When they went back to the Falls Bar to talk to and confront Little John, he tried to tell them that it wasn't until the following day, when he saw Met's story in the news, that it clicked. He suddenly remembered her being at the bar. According to Detective Mateague, Little John was, quote, very forthcoming. His thing was, I walked her out of the bar, and I went my way, and she went her way. He had no problem trying to prove to us that he wasn't the guy, end quote. But here's the thing. (laughs) These NYPD detectives were on their game. They ended up locating an unhoused person not too far from the Falls Bar, and that person remembered seeing Emmett getting into a van. So they went back to Little John and, you know, casually asked him just how exactly he gets to and from work, you know, at the bar. And he told them that he has a van, a van that just so happened to match the description of the van that the security guard from the construction company had seen and the same type of van that the unhoused person had described as well. At this point, detectives knew they were on to something and they were at least headed in the right direction. They also knew Little John was a dangerous dude and they needed to get him off the streets regardless. So remember that parole Little John was on? Well, they were able to prove that he was in the middle of violating that parole. You see, he was supposed to be at his residence by 10 p.m. every night, but that was not happening because he was bouncing at the falls much, much later than that until at least 3.30 or 4 a.m. every single day. So they put little John behind bars for violating parole as they continued the investigation. Obviously, though, now little John was their primary suspect, and detectives began gathering as much evidence against him as they could. They started with a court order to track his cell phone movements and they discovered that he was on the phone at his residence in Queens, New York. His phone then traveled from his house to the site where Emmett was found, which was all around the same time that Emmett's body was dumped near Belt Parkway in Spring Creek Park. But again, here's the thing. That's all circumstantial evidence. I mean, he could have simply been the getaway driver and the person responsible for disposing of the body rather than the actual murderer. So next, they obtained a search warrant for his residence in Queens. When investigators pulled up to Little John's home, they immediately spotted a van in the driveway, a van that was an exact match of the description given to them by the security guard. From this, they also discovered that the van actually did not have registered plates. Then, as soon as they walked into the house, they spotted some red carpet throughout, which looked very similar to the red fibers found on the tape that covered Emmett's face. According to the New York Post, investigators also were able to search the basement of the Falls Bar, where they found some tape and wires that were similar to the ones used at the crime scene. The rest of the investigation was all downhill from here. Forensic testing revealed that touch DNA from Little John's hand was on the snowbrush found at the scene, a place where Little John said he never was. Forensic testing also generated a DNA profile from the speck of blood found on the zip ties, which matched Little John's DNA as well. And the red fibers from the tape came back as a match from the red carpet in Little John's home. From this, investigators determined that Little John's residence was the origin of the crime scene. 
They believe Emmett was brutally tortured, raped, and murdered at Little John's house before he wrapped her in the floral bedspread, also from his house. And then he placed her inside of his van before he ultimately dumped her body in Brooklyn. Naturally, with a discovery as big as this in a murder investigation, the news was saturated with the story, and Little John's face and van were blasted all over the media. Meanwhile, a woman by the name of Shanae Woodard was watching it all unfold, and she suddenly realized she had seen that van before. She had actually been victimized by the same person driving that same van. Shanae, wanting to help and report what had happened to her as well, called police and explained to them that four months prior, she was a college student walking home from New York College. She said she believes it was Little John who jumped out of his van and forced her inside. She explained that he was wearing a hat that said Fugitive Patrol across it, and he told her he was a U.S. Marshal. Inside his van, he had a bulletproof vest, handcuffs, and raid jackets. Shanae said he pretended to be law enforcement, at which point he proceeded to handcuff her and put her in the van. It all happened so fast, but as soon as she was inside the van, she knew she was in trouble. So, thinking, not me, not today, Shanae slid over to the door while her hands were handcuffed behind her back. She found the handle, and at the right moment, she opened it and flung herself out as she tumbled across the road. At the time of the incident, she did report it to police, but the crime remained unsolved until now, until she saw Little John and his van on the news. After this, forensics discovered a saliva stain on a seat inside the van, which matched Shanae's DNA. It also sealed Little John's fate. Two years later, in 2008, Daryl Littlejohn was found guilty of kidnapping Shanae Woodard, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Then, about a year after that, in June of 2009, Littlejohn went to trial on charges of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and unlawful imprisonment of Amet Sengeen. According to New York Homicide, the defense argued that Littlejohn dumped Amet's body, but that he did not kill her. The defense also argued that Danny Dorian, the bar manager, was the one who actually killed Amet, and Little John was just the one left to clean up the mess and dispose of her body. However, it is critical to note that this was simply a tactic the defense used to poke holes and generate reasonable doubt. The detectives involved in Amet's case found no evidence that Danny Dorian had anything to do with the crime. Regardless, the defense's tactics did not work. According to an article in the New York Times, Little John, then 44 years old, stared blankly ahead in the courtroom on June 3, 2009, as the guilty verdict was read. He was officially convicted of first-degree murder, which, in the state of New York, means that the crime took place during the commission of another crime, in this case, sexual assault. A little over a month later, on July 8, 2009, Little John was sentenced to life without parole in Brooklyn State Supreme Court. After delivering Little John's sentence, Judge Abraham G. Gurgis addressed Emmett's family. He said, quote, I hope that the conclusion of these proceedings today will provide you with some small measure of solace, end quote. In June of 2006, when Emmett would have been walking across the stage and graduating with her master's degree in criminal justice, John Jay College awarded Emmett Sanguine a posthumous degree, an honor that Emmett's mother, Maureen, and her sister, Alejandra, accepted on her behalf. They recalled that when they accepted the degree, they held up Emmett's photo and the entire venue erupted in cheers and applause. Former president of John Jay College, Jeremy Travis, said, quote, 
Amet represented the best of us. She was just so vibrant and vital and somebody off to do good work in her life, end quote. The college also started a scholarship in Amet's memory for graduate students pursuing a career in criminal justice. One of the first people to receive the scholarship was Joanna Vespa, or Vesp, who is now an alum of John Jay College. Joanna said receiving the scholarship was a humbling honor because Amet was such a dedicated, brilliant student. Joanna explained, quote, layered on top of this tragedy was the loss of someone who was working to pursue a career to improve the system that ultimately failed her, end quote. And to Joanna, that sentiment made receiving the scholarship mean that much more to her. Amet's murder also sparked the passing of Amet's law in New York. Bouncers are now required to be licensed with a rigorous background check, and all cabarets and dance halls are now required to keep cameras at their entrances and exits. Amet's friends and family remember her for her beauty, her brilliance, her compassion, and her love of fun and dancing. Apparently, on a night out, she was known to be able to get even the shyest wallflower out on the dance floor. Her funeral service was held in Boston just a few days after what would have been her 25th birthday. Catrice Paulding, one of Amet's closest friends, recalled the overwhelming sense of love she felt that day when she arrived. Catrice said, quote, There was not a place to park. There was not a place to stand or sit. And I never knew a love like that until I was there. You know that Amet affected people by the crowd. She made an impact on a lot of other people's lives. You have to give her kudos for that, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 60. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram, or you can follow my personal account on Instagram at Nicole Kaylin. That's K-A-L-Y-N-N. And be sure to check out my TikTok, Campus Crime Podcast, for some additional campus crime stories. There are some new ones up there. Also, I know I've said this before, but y'all, I'm so excited that I officially have over 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts because of you, because y'all made that happen. But also, like I've said before, I still need more. So I have a proposition slash challenge for (laughs) y'all. So listen to this. For every 50 reviews I get on Apple Podcasts, I will drop a bonus episode. Yep, you heard that right. I will drop an extra episode for every 50 reviews. So right now I'm at about 104. So that means when I get to 150, y'all get a bonus episode. Then when I get to 200 reviews, y'all get another episode. At 250, another. And so on and so on and so on. Until wait for it. I reach at least 500 reviews. So that's right. You heard all of that, right? I'm going to pump out some extra episodes for you guys in exchange for reviews. (laughs) Okay, y'all, I promise to make this happen if you do. So let's get to work. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.